All right, let's see. We are in Exodus 37, a couple of housekeeping things. We, are, we will not be in Exodus until the la- again until the last Sunday of the year. Ooh. Next Sunday, we're doing Thanksgiving. And then four Sundays after that are the four Sundays of Advent. So we're going to be doing Christmas. It's going to be fun. Fun will be had by all, whether you like it or not, right? They used to be included in a senior newsletter at a church I was a youth pastor in. Every senior, every week, every month, the senior newsletter would conclude with, they, would, they were served delicious refreshments and fun was had by all. I'm like, I'm starting to doubt that. If you have to keep telling me that fun was had by all, I'm starting to wonder if fun was really had. So, anyway, it is what it is. So, yeah, we will not, we will not be in Exodus again until the final Sunday of the year, which is technically the day after Christmas. And then we will finish it in the second Sunday, I believe, in January. We'll be done with Exodus. Woo! So, and I have all next year laid out, so you're covered. We're good. We got everything going until 2023. We are all planned out. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is we have no new information today. <laughs> so, if you have been paying attention... Those of you that have been awake, and I know who you are now. Uh, if you have been paying attention, we don't get anything new because we are in the construction phase of the tabernacle. So, like last week, we have two options. We can just go back over everything we did before, or we can try to take what we did and build upon it. I chose option C, which is a little bit of what we've done before, because if you're like me, you don't remember everything we talked about beforehand, right? Right? because you didn't write it down. I wrote it down, and I don't remember everything I said beforehand. So we will remind, and then we're going to try to build on it, which means what we're going to really try to do is something we did a little bit in Sunday school this morning, and that's just because this is where my brain is today. I can't help myself. Um, Christianity is a historical faith. And what I mean by that is not that it's old, even though it is. What we mean when we say a historical faith is that Christianity is rooted in historical events. This is not a matter of just some guru showed up one day. I mean, this, this would be your History Channel theology, right? Jesus showed up as a guru in turn of the millennia Middle East, and he taught these wonderful sayings that some people have corrupted and some people have followed and some people think are stupid. That's kind of a good summary of the takes about Jesus, right? But is that what actually happened? No, we're building on, even at the time of Christ, you're building on um, almost two millennia of history with Israel, and you're building on over two millennia of history before Israel, when you go all the way back to Abraham and even farther back than that. So we're dealing with the events of history, again, as we talked about with Elisha in Samaria, revealing the things that are happening and explaining them, but not just explaining what's happening with the people, but explaining how that teaches you about God, who he is, what he has done, and therefore what he will do. So we have a historical faith. So what we want to do today, since we get no new information in Exodus 37, is remind of the things that we learned when we went through the command to build these things, now that we're actually building them, remind what's going on there, and then bridge that gap. Remember, I always talk about two timelines here. So we've got the timeline that we're actually looking at. So there's Moses, and there's Bezalel, and Aholiab, and Aaron, and these guys are actually doing stuff all through this timeline. But at the same time, we have the work of God from beginning to end, working within that timeline to bring about his plans and purposes. Make sense? So what we want to do today is try to try to do some bridging, which means less just breaking down the text and more trying to show you the connections in Scripture. The stuff I'm really, really bad at. 
So either you are in for a treat today, or you should have some rotten vegetables on hand ready to throw. Sound good? And since you don't have any, Vern's checking his bag. <laughs> if anybody actually had rotten vegetables today, it would, they would be in Vern's bag. He's like, ooh, cabbage. So I think all the hymnals are on the shelf back there. So if we need to, you can have the kids distribute those later and you can launch those at me. Sound like a good plan? All right. In that case, we are going to be taking these in bulk sections. So RSLE is in for a treat because she's got to keep up with everything. So let's just dive right in. Now, Bezalel made the Ark of Acacia wood. The length was two and a half cubits. It's width one and a half cubits. It's height one and a half cubits. Again, not, not massive. Was, I think it was like four by two, give or take. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and out and made a gold molding for it all around. He cast four rings of gold on gold for its four feet, even two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. He made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. Remember the tabernacle, everything about this is going to be portable. When, when, God, when Israel is to travel, God travels with them, literally and symbolically. He made a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. He made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub at the one end and the other cherub at the other end. That's usually how that works. He made the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat and the two at the two ends. The cherubim had their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and with their faces toward each other. The faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. Okay. We've covered all that before when God commanded Moses on how to build it. Who is the ark about? It's about God. How do we know this? Well, we can fast forward to things like Hebrews chapter 8. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts, the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, saying, See that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. Remember that about the tabernacle. Moses is given instructions, and we have read these instructions. Are they really specific? Are they, are they though? I mean, if I gave you that description, let me, let's say, okay, who, who feels like they're crafty and can build stuff well? I need some volunteers. I got one. All right, I got two. If I gave you that description, do you think you would both produce the same thing? No. It's, it's specific, but here's the question. But is it detailed? No. We need a blueprint. Like, I've done this with ceiling fans before. I've, I've put way too many ceiling fans, and I've installed too many ceiling fans in my life because for some other reason, nobody likes ceiling fans in the world but me. And so I put them in every bedroom and living room I've ever lived in. And, and I, don't understand, I don't understand why ceiling fans aren't more popular. They're wonderful. So I've gotten way too good at putting them in. This has nothing to do with anything. But depends on which one you buy. Depends on how good the instructions are. Because some of them, it's like, ooh, I get a picture, and I get instructions. And then I bought one that was such a piece of junk, I literally just got pictures. And I'm standing on this ladder holding it up to the ceiling trying to turn it like, okay, no, that doesn't look like this. All right, never mind. We're just going to figure it out and hope I don't blur, burn the house down. Moses gets both. Moses is given the instructions, which are fairly specific, but they're not detailed. But he's also shown the vision of the tabernacle that God occupies in heaven. So that Moses, when he comes down, can literally look at these guys and be like, no, that's not what that looks like. It looks like this. 
Moses is your bridge, the communicator. Why? Because this is Moses' job. He is the prophet that communicates for God to the people, not just what they should do, but who God is and how you walk and serve him. So this tabernacle is about God. The ark is about God. It is his throne established amongst his people on earth. Now, does God need that? I mean, does God need a chair on a box that Israel carries around in the desert? Well, no. There's literally a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The angel of the Lord is walking around in the camp. God doesn't need this, which means it's got to be doing what? Which means it's instructing. It's got to be telling us things. And it does. It tells us two things. The first is about presence. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If if I make my bed in the grave, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. This is one of the hallmarks of the Old Testament is where can you go that God can't see you and has to play Marco Polo to find you? Wherever you may be, whatever nation on earth, whatever language you speak, whatever hole in the ground you think you can hide in, God is there. Now, carry that forward, Christian, Matthew 28. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What's changed? Nothing. The ark is a symbol of this. What is, what is the description of Israel supposed to be at this point? I better be specific with my questions. Are they supposed to be the people of God? Which means, does God dwell amongst his people? Yes. Does he need a throne? No. But let's be honest. Wouldn't that make you feel a little bit better? <laughs> like, wouldn't you like it a little bit better if we could like, go to the gym be like, and here's where God sits during the service. See? <laughs> You'd be like, He's here. Forget Santa. We got Jesus. Don't ask me where that just came from. I told you, part of my brain is still in Ohio somewhere. So this is what this is demonstrating, that God is near his people. But where does the ark go in the tabernacle? I mean, does it go at the front door? No. It goes inside the tent, behind the curtain, separated by the veil. So there is still a separation because are you God? No. Is God like you? No, not even a little bit, which means there is also a majesty, a highness of God. What is this thing covered in? Gold by candlelight. What's that going to look like? I mean, the thing is going to be, you're going to walk in this dimly candlelit room, but what are you going to notice? Yeah. Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. See, we don't do this, thank goodness, anymore much in this country. But this was a thing in the 80s. You ever go to a wedding in the 80s? What did every bride have? That train! And how long were those things? It took like 84 people just to get her down the corner. If you had to get changed over here and get a bride in this room, 
in like 1987. It would have taken eight people, and I'm not kidding, because the, 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 the oh, my brain does not want to work right now. It's here, and it won't get to there. The trend at the time was for what kind of train on bridal dresses. It's like, unless you do like one of Cameron's aunts, and they did the, uh, the, um, the bell thing, and one of the bridesmaids didn't realize it and sat down, and they couldn't get back up because she sat on the wiring, and then the wire went up, and she was stuck. <laughs> Such fun. Yeah. Yeah, that was the oldest daughter, though. The middle daughter went with the train thing. She literally, they had a sanctuary. Um, the sanctuary at that church will seat on the bottom about 250 people. And she had a train that was the entire main aisle. Why? Why would you do that? Let's be honest. Why, why would you do that? Because I can and because it makes everybody look at who? Yes. And that's the lie we've said about weddings, is that it's about you. No, it's about Jesus, but we're not having that sermon today. We'll do that another day. The robe in Isaiah's vision, filling the temple. Do you have clothes like that? Does anybody in Isaiah's world have clothes like that? Why not? There's a better reason. We talked about this a little last week. How complicated would it be to make that robe? How much material, how many sheep do you have to run down in the field and bring back and shave and then spindle? Remember, I told you that the, go look it up. It's on, um, if you have like a fire stick or a Roku or something like that, go look up Pluto TV. They actually have the slow TV stuff. You can find it. So go, go look it up. It's like 13 hours long. They start with a sheep, they end with a sweater. And it takes like 10 people 13 hours to do that. Now imagine how many people you would have to employ, how many sheep you would have to own that you could build, build, assemble, sew, create. What's, what's, the, what's the, te 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 the technical textiles term? You say that three times fast for making a robe. And you would do that to the point that an entire temple that is massive is just overflowing with material. See, does the description of God owning the cattle on a, on a thousand hillsides make more sense to you now? It's a demonstration of what is at his disposal, at his fingertips. That's what the ark is meant to symbolize. That's why you see that throughout the Old Testament. Now, fast forward into Hebrews again, chapter 8. The main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So in other words, Christ's exaltedness is an exaltedness that is equal to God's because Christ is God. Now, presence, majesty. If you'd like your theological terms of the day, this is the two, part of the two attributes of God, the descriptions. His imminence and his transcendence. And this is part of the balance we have to always walk when we understand how we relate to God. God is imminent. He is near to us. The Holy Spirit actually indwells God's people. There is nowhere that you go that God does not go with you. Let that be something that should terrify you more often than it really does. <laughs> I will not give examples. But at the same time, God is transcendent. You are not like God, and God is not like you. He is high, exalted, and lofty. If you would like to see the, the mistakes that churches make and that Christians make individually is when we fail to drive down the middle of the highway between those two ideals. Have you been to that church that there's, it never feels like anything's important? Like the music is not important, the, the Bible reading's not important, the sermon's not, everything's just like, we're just hanging out and it's a good time. And look, is there a place for that? 
Yes, because God is imminent. We should treat him as such, that there is nowhere that we go that he is not there. There is nothing that we have fallen into that his help cannot reach us. But if that is the only thing we have, do we really have God? The answer is no. We've missed something. We've lost the power. We've lost the authority. We've lost the strength. Now, conversely, you've been to that church where everything is the end of the world? Don't make noise. Sit up straight. Like We have come today for the worship of God. And you're like, if anybody gets any more uptight, we're going to explode. Because what have they lost? They've lost imminence. They've lost the fact that we are sitting here, like we're in the Marine Corps, to worship a God who is indwelling us. We are his people, his children. There's a middle ground. Find the balance in your life, apply it properly. But recognize that he goes, which means his power, his mercy, his love, his grace. All of that goes with him. Therefore, it goes with you. So find the balance. This is what the ark is supposed to draw. God is in the camp with the people, but you don't just go in and play rummy. You like that image, huh? It's like somebody sitting around the ark of the covenant like, okay, Got any twos? Go fish. I know I switch games on you, and no, I don't care. I don't even know how to play rummy. No, I don't want to know if you were going to tell me afterwards. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Just don't worry about it. That's what's being symbolized here. The, again, teaching about who? The people? No, we know what the people are. What are the people? Sinful. Sinful, broken, corrupt. Pick your adjective, apply it. It will be correct. We're not learning about them. We're learning about the God who is redeeming them. We are worrying about the God who is sanctifying them. We care about him first and foremost. So let's build something else. Sound like fun? All right. Then he made the table of acacia wood, two cubits long and a cubit wide and one and a half cubits high. He overlaid it with pure gold and made a gold molding for it all around. He made a rim for it of a hand breadth all around and made a gold molding for its rim all around. Notice how much of this is getting covered. All around, right? Anytime you get those repeated words, pay attention. He cast four gold rings for it and put the rings on the four corners that were on its four feet. Close by the rim were the rings, the holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold to carry the table. He made the utensils which were on the table, its dishes and its pans and its bowls and its jars, with which to pour out drink offerings of pure gold. Now, who's the table about? God. Notice we're going to ask two questions about all of this today. Who's this about and what's it teaching us? Okay, so just so you know, there's your theme of the morning. If you look in your bulletin, you'd actually see that on the outline, but nobody looks at the bulletin, so hold on. All right, I'm better. (laughs) Exodus 25, rewind to when Moses was commanded about this. You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. So in other words, when the priest goes in, there is a table. We just described it for drink offerings, for food offerings, but there's always bread. Is that so when the priest gets a bowl of popcorn or something, he can just like grab a snack? No. The priest will consume the bread, but only when new bread is put out. Is this about the priest having food? No, it's a reminder. It's a lesson in memory. Why would God command you to always have bread before his presence? Deuteronomy chapter 8. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry, 
fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. That's why the bread is there before the, and the presence. It's a reminder to those priests. Why are you here? Because of God. Who has empowered you? God. Who has ordained you? God. Who has instructed you? God. Who has carried you? God. Who has provided for you? God. See, this is the worry of the world. This is, uh, fast forward to Luke. This is the story of the, uh, the man who's had a good harvest and he's got all this stuff. What shall I do? I know what I'll do. I'll build silos and storage places and then I'll store up all my stuff and my soul will be satisfied. And that very night, you're going to die. Bye-bye. Great Axl Rose theology. You're going to die. Sorry. <laughs> I was listening to the 80s channel on Sirius Radio. <laughs> what will all that grain, what will all that storage space, what will it all mean for him? Nothing. Should your soul be satisfied in stuff? No. Your soul should be satisfied in God. This is why before God provided water for them, did you, did you miss that part of the story? They walked how many days into the wilderness? Three days out into the wilderness. No water, no food. Just keep, keep walking. I won't finish that song because it's a different Bible story. Sorry. I told you it's going to be a rough day. Three days out. After a while, you know, you start getting to morning three, you start getting nervous, don't you? I haven't seen any rivers or ponds or lakes. And, and we keep going towards the sandy stuff and away from the wet, comfortable stuff. Can we... Um, and then they crumble. They complain and they whine and God rescues them. Because it's not about them. It's about where shall your provision come from? That's why they hunger. That's why they thirst. Would you like an example of this going to the New Testament? How many of you have heard that Deuteronomy verse before, but not in Deuteronomy? Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. That'll do it. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. See, always know this. If you want to understand more the earthly ministry of Christ, understand the work of God in redemption, which means understand Exodus. I've told you this. You want to understand your prophets, understand Exodus. You want to understand the earthly ministry of Christ, understand Exodus. These fulfillments matter. And it's not just that they're fulfillments, they're fixes. See, Israel was led out into the wilderness where they hungered and thirsted. How did they do? Did they stand steadfast in the desert and go, God shall provide for the people he has redeemed. He will not lead us through this great tribulation so that we will die. Our faith is strong. No. And if they said it like that, it'd be, that'd be it. That's how we should, we should do a rewrite. We should make that movie, right? And actually, what should have happened? We can't cash Charlton Heston, though. You can't make a, movie, a Bible movie about Charlton Heston, can you? Is that against, isn't that against the law somewhere? Anyway. No, what do they do? We're hungry. We're thirsty. We had food and slavery in Egypt. We had water. I want to go home. They were four-year-olds, you know, on a long car ride. Not that I have any experience with four-year-olds on a long car ride. Israel failed miserably. Adam failed miserably. Your first representatives failed miserably in all of these things. The second Adam the true fulfillment of Israel, your new representative before God succeeds. So when the tempter says, hey, hungry? Look at those stones over there. You got some power? Let's make some bread. What do you say? He said, it is written, 
Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus looks at it and said, yeah, I can make those stones become bread, but that's not where my provision comes from. My provision is from God. Now, what is this teaching you, Christian? 1 Corinthians 10, we have used this a bunch, and we are going to continue using it as long as we're in Exodus, because it matters. These things happened as examples to us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters if some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. That's the description of what happened while Moses was coming down the mountain and they did the golden calf thing. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. That'll happen in Numbers. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. That, that happens a bunch. These things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, so in light of all of that, now do this. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. In other words, recognizing their failures is a fail- their failure was not just a, we were hungry, we were thirsty, we were bored, we were whatever. Their failure was... I want my comfort and my peace when? Now. I want my belly full when? Now. I want my thirst quenched when? Now. I want my provision and my blessing. And God said, no. And they went. And they did it again. And again. And again. Because where did they think this was all supposed to lead? Who did they think this was all supposed to lead to? God has taken us out of Egypt. What was the emphasis for them? God has taken us out of Egypt. It should have been God has taken us out of Egypt. It's not about us. It's about what has God done, the work that he has accomplished. He has brought us this far. He will bring us farther. This is why Paul can tell the Philippians that God who has begun a work will do what? We'll complete it. We'll finish it. We'll bring it to a final day. Because he doesn't go this far to say, all right, have a nice life. You did a good job. We'll see how you figure it out from here on in. Because we know how you're going to figure it out from here on in. What's the answer to that going to be? Yeah. That's why, God, that's why Moses tells the people his last punchline. Go, because God will neither leave you nor forsake you. It's a lesson on provision. Paul sees this and rightly says, that's written for God's people. Hey, what are we supposed to be? God's people, which means the lesson on provision then is a lesson on provision now. And the lesson was not, hey, look, guys, they didn't starve to death in the desert. I mean, tell me this doesn't sound like some bad middle of the night TV preaching right here. See, God didn't let them starve in the desert. So what we need to do is get a band of people together and go out into the desert to show our faith and God will feed us with manna from heaven. That, that just sounds dumb. What's the rule? Okay, making sure we're still paying attention. That rule is always in effect at all times. Don't do dumb things. 
It sounds ridiculous because it is ridiculous. The manna wasn't about them not starving to death. It was teaching them that God provides. The water from the rock was not about quenching their thirst. It was that God is your peace and your security. Moses having to hold his arms up over the battle was not because Moses was like some weird boogeyman on the mountaintop and the, the, the Ammonites were like, oh no, his arms are up. We can't fight anymore. It was because this is, the, this is the faithful action that God has commanded you to do. Therefore, as you do it, God provides for his people. Don't do it. You have, what do we call it? Give me one word, you ready? What do we call it when you, God tells you to do something and you don't do it? Give me a good Bible word. Sin. God has no obligation to bless and work within your sinfulness, does he? No. What do you deserve when you sin? The back of my hand. How many times? As many as it takes. That's why when Moses' arms come down, they start losing the battle. When they prop his arms up and hold them up, well, there you go. Now we are being an obedient people, and God will fulfill what he has promised. Again, not because Moses keeps his arms up. Does God need Moses' arms up to do this? No, but because God has said, there's the condition. There's the demonstration so that the Israelites, as they're fighting, can realize when that battle's over, that man's arms are still up. Look what they had to do to keep his arms up. He couldn't do it. And yet we won. Praise be to who? Moses' arms? No, praise be to God. This is the lesson. Where does your provision come from? It's not from your job. It's not from your family. It's not from your intelligence. It's not from everything. It is from God. Where is your peace to be found? It is not to be found in your chair. It is not to be found in your couch. It is not to be found in whatever quiet room you try to pretend the world doesn't exist in. It is to be found in God, these things matter. That's, that is supposed to be what the priest thinks about when he sees that bread. That God provides for his people. That we have bread on this table because God has blessed his people. How has he blessed his people? He has given us a land and a tabernacle. He has redeemed us from the house of slavery. He has done all of these things and he has not. Therefore, he will not forget nor forsake us. That is all supposed to be contained in the bread. Christian, that is what is supposed to be contained when you get dressed. Why do you have shoes? Because you're like, well, because they have Walmart. (laughs) China, that's why we have shoes, because everything comes from China. Well, it used to until they had a backlog in California somewhere, but (laughs) now because nothing comes from China, we have... No, you have shoes because you have been gifted. You have been provided for. You have been strengthened. You have been sent out, and in your obedience, you have been blessed. When you get dressed, it's a reminder that God has provided. When you eat a meal, it is a reminder that God has provided. When your children do something smart instead of something dumb, it is a reminder that God has preserved them through themselves in opposition to everything I have been trying to teach them, because let's be honest, how good are we at this job? Yeah, not good at all. When I choose well instead of choosing poorly, that's a reminder that I haven't nailed it, but that God has worked and accomplished within me. That's what's supposed to be contained here. So, as my pages stick together, let's continue. Then he made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base and its shaft, its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers were of one piece with it. There were six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand from the one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand from the other side of it. I'm so glad for that, because that would have bothered me to the end of time if it was like four and two. 
my my OCD. I'd been like twitching every time I read that verse. Like, why would you do this except just to bother me? But anyway, three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a bulb and a flower in one branch, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a bulb and a flower in the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, in the lampstand, there were four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers, and a bulb was under the first pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and their branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single hammered work of pure gold. That had to be complicated to figure out to make. Bezalel was good. That's, that's all I'm going to say. He made it seven lamps with its snuffers and its trays of pure gold. He made it in all its utensils from a talent of pure gold. Okay. Who's the lampstand about? God. Okay, how? Smarty pants. Mm-hmm. You're so good. No. <laughs> Turning into a children's Sunday school class. When you ask the children a question, they don't know what it is. Every child says what? Jesus! I feel like we're getting to that point. All right, how, does, how, is, how are a bunch of candlelights, bulbs and things, shaped like almond blossoms about God? Jeremiah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. Almond blossoms are supposed to be a reminder of both life and of death. A reminder that it is the Lord who gives and that it is the Lord who takes away. And they do this by providing what? What's the purpose of a light? To provide light. Now, again, this is candlelight, but it is still light. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. God saw the light was good and separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. I always like to point this out. You're not going to get sun, moon, and stars for like three more days. Where's the light coming from? God. The light comes from God. Blessings and cursings come from God. Prosperity and judgment comes from God. This light is supposed to be a reminder that, priest, why can you see? Because there is a light in this world. And where does it come from? John chapter 3. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men loved, men loved the light, right? No, men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. See, this is why... This is why when Martin Luther, we read this on um, Halloween Sunday for Reformation Day. When God speaks of repentance, he means the entirety of the Christian life to be a life of repentance. The reason that was so important is because it encapsulates the difference between the, the, um, the sinner and the saint. It encapsulates the difference between the Christian and the pagan. 
See, when the world is caught in their wrongdoing, does, does the world ever come out and be like, we got this one wrong, guys. Oops, my bad. No, they do what? They lie, they hide it, they cheat, they steal, whatever we, look, as long as I don't get caught, everything is good. That's why if you ever, here, I'll use my, my travel example. You ever rehearsed what you're going to say to the police officer after he pulled you over? <laughs> why? Because this is not about honesty. This is about me not getting in trouble. That's all this has ever been about. So when the police officer comes up to your door, you're like, all right, what are my lines? How does this work? You women that cry, shame on you. Just so you know. <laughs> Unless you're Jada. I got pulled over one time with Jada in the back seat, and she cried. Daddy going to jail? No, honey, we're just getting a ticket. It's okay. <laughs> it's it's going to be fine. <laughs> Guy has to roll, roll down the window so he can explain to my two kids that I'm, they're, they're not going to shoot me. They're not going to haul me off in handcuffs for going, you know, 63 and a 55. That's not how this works. It's okay. <laughs> what's the separates that from the Christian? Christian, what's supposed to be the attitude when you're caught in your trespasses and sins? Yeah, repenting. What's the first step of repentance? To acknowledge that I have done what is wrong, which means to stand in front of the light and say, I messed up. That is contrary to human nature. Don't believe me? Who taught your children to lie? Nobody. They just did it one day. Did you do that? No. (laughs) Did you eat that cookie? No. Chocolate smeared all over their face. Did you pick up that toy? No. Who taught them this was okay? Nobody. They just, they realized what? There's a consequence, and then there's a chance of me not getting busted. So you're saying there's a chance. And that's the road they went down, because that's what human nature looks like. Not some of the time, all of the time. That's why those who are evil hate the light, because their deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth, ooh, what was that? He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That still sound weird? Okay, there we go. All of a sudden, got the electronic voice. We're doing some Depeche Mode thing here. Now, where is that fulfilled? John 8. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of light, meaning that those who are following Christ, all your deeds are now where? In the light. Good, bad, and ugly, which is why the entirety of the life is a life of repentance. Now, did you notice that? Just like the lamp, two presences. The lamp is a blessing, isn't it? I can see what I'm doing. That's a good thing when I'm offering sacrifices, when I'm pouring out drink offerings, when I'm working with fire. I want to see what I'm doing, don't you? Good thing. But it's also a reminder of judgment. How many of you guys did your homework in Isaiah? Anybody? Did anybody love me enough to do your homework? Let's see if I can get some good guilt trip going. (laughs) Make you... (laughs) I learned well from my grandmother. My grandmother... My, my grandmother was the master of guilt. She would, she'd call you up. Well, can you, can you help me do this? Well, no, I can't. Oh, well, that's okay. I know you're busy. I'll just be here at the house. And, I'll, and then she'd run off like the 15 things she couldn't do because you couldn't show up. You're like, all right, fine, I'm on the way. <laughs> my, my grandmother had that down to a science. All right, go home. Homework. Read Isaiah. 
the first half, well, not the first half, but the first 39 chapters, because those are the judgment chapters. And make a note, how many times in the judgment chapters is there a promise of redemption, a promise of a remnant, a promise of restoration? Because you're going to be shocked if you're looking for it, because it's constant. In other words, that the people who are supposedly walking in the light, even though they sin and fall apart, what is God doing? He's still pulling them along. I asked this question. Is God trying to save people? I asked this question in Sunday school. Daryl nailed it. Daryl gets the gold star for the day. Is God trying to save a people? No, he's doing what? He is saving a people. I've made this joke before. You know, the, you, do you remember, was, was it the 90s when those um, footsteps pictures were such a big deal? Everybody had those, the, the footprints in the stand. And it's like, there were two footprints in the sand. And like, one was me and one was God. And then there was a section of my life. And during the hardest parts of my life, there was only one set of footprints. And it's like, God, why did you leave me during those times? And the answer is, I didn't. I was carrying you. And then we all cry and drink out of our Joshua 24 mugs, you know. Okay. You know how I feel about coffee cup Bible verses. So, See, I've said if you want that to be biblically accurate, it shouldn't be two sets of footprints. It should be two sets of footprints and drag marks. Because there are parts of our lives where we're all walking along just fine, and then we went, no, I'm good. And the Holy Spirit clubs you over the back of the head, knocks you out, and drags you through until you come to again. And then puts you back in your feet and goes, all right, are we good now? Yeah, I want to keep going this way. Yeah, that's, that's, a, good, that's a good plan. Like that Bugs Money cartoon. One lump or two? Two. Dun, dun. That's what God does for you. And it's a blessing. Because why, why do you look at your spouse and say, why'd you do that? Why do you look at your children and say, why did you do that? Why do you look at your siblings and say, why did you do that? Because you love them and you care about them and you want to understand why they just did the dumb thing. Because you can then do what? We can now correct that dumb thing. We can now fix the problem. And if we're honest with ourselves, well, once we get over ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, when we do the dumb thing, what do we want them to do? The same exact thing. Like I said, once we get over ourselves, once we get past that, how dare you? I am perfect. What do you mean I have sinned? Okay, you're right. Let's move on. Once we get past all that, that's what we want. Why? Because sometimes I need somebody to drag me kicking and screaming through the things of life because I don't want to do that thing. And God is saving a people, therefore he accomplishes. That's why there's a lamp. That's why it's a reminder. It's a reminder of who God is and what he's doing. So, then he made the altar of incense, of acacia wood, a cubit long and a cubit was a wide square, two cubits high. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around. Its horns he made of gold molding for it all around. He made two golden rings for it under its molding on its two sides, on opposite sides, as holders for poles with which to carry it. I love that God has to tell them to put the, the, pole, the carrying poles on opposite sides. Like, he trusts them so little, he doesn't think they're going to put the carrying poles on opposite sides. I don't know, Bubba, where do you want to put these? Well, we'll put them right here on the same side, and then we'll just drag it. I mean, God's like, put two rings on one side, and put two rings on the other side. That way it goes even, okay? Just fun little notes on your Bible. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, and he made the holy anointing oil and the pure fragrant incense of spices the work of a, of the work of a perfumer. Tie myself in a knot here. Okay, who's the altar about? God demonstrating what? Remember we made a big deal about the perfume? 
I mean, go back, go back to um, Exodus 30 for homework. Add that to your Isaiah homework. Go back to Exodus 30 and read that. It's a pile of stuff, and all of it smells. And I don't mean that as like a good or a bad, but you couldn't miss it. Now, again, do you ever stand next to a wood fire and then go in the house? You smell like wood smoke. Then do you ever put your clothes in the hamper? And then when you go to do laundry two days later, what do your clothes smell like? Yeah, it's like, oh, but forgot about that. What happens when you take a shower the next day? You put your hair under the water and go, I smell like a chimney. Because it gets into everything. They're going to be burning this incense and this perfume constantly. The camp is going to smell of this all the time. Now, who else was allowed to make this perfume? Do you remember? Like, were you allowed to run down to the tabernacle, five and dime, and pick up your own little at-home bottle of perfume? Like, get your own tabernacle scent, spray it in the car, spray it at the house. No, no one was allowed to make this except for the tabernacle, which means, as silly as this is going to sound to say, God would have a smell in the camp. That would smell like God, because that would be what the tabernacle smelled like, and nothing else would have that smell. So you'd go into somebody's house, and they would have their own fragrance or whatever, but it wouldn't be the tabernacle fragrance. So every time you saw that, you would be reminded of what? God. Every time you smelled that. Because remember, smell is the most powerful memory thing. You will be told something and go, did that really happen like that? You will smell something and know exactly where you were standing, what happened when you smelled it before. It's, it's, it's horrendous. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. How do you know that? Where will that perfume smell go? Everywhere. What will it cover? Everything. Fast forward to Hebrews 12. Since we, have, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable servants with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Think it's any coincidence that the book of Hebrews, which most clearly explains the work of the tabernacle in the New Testament, keeps borrowing the language of Deuteronomy. Have you noticed that? Because what is Deuteronomy doing? It's expounding who God is. How does Moses in his speech in Deuteronomy know who God is? Because he has walked through the Exodus and seen the work. So as you're explaining the work of, tabernacle, of the tabernacle, you are explaining the work of God. And his work flows from his what? His character and his nature. Who God is is what determines what God does. So as I explain his work, I am explaining him. So as I am explaining and understanding that work, I am more clearly seeing who he is and therefore what he has done. Now, what does this consumingness teach you? Deuteronomy 7. The Lord did not, this is another favorite of mine, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. That's Moses' like most backhanded compliment ever. God didn't pick you because you were numerous and good. He picked you because you were tiny and miserable. <laughs> But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, he, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. All right, who wants to play Guess the Bible Verse in My Head? Ooh, I do, I do. Vern actually does. You, you probably do. Can you think of anywhere in the New Testament, anywhere in those writings, 
where there might be a corollary to Christian. You're not great, but you are redeemed. You are not good, but you are God's. Anybody got something? Consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. He's, he's talking about us. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Yes, and I attempt to live that out each and every day. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world, the despised of God. The, 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 I'm sorry, the despised God has chosen. The... Ah, oh my goodness, I can't read. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You nailed it. Good job. Gold star. <laughs> Why? Because what's the corollary that Paul's drawing? We weren't good. Do you know the economic condition of the majority of the church in the first century? I mean, were there tons of noblemen of Rome running around becoming Christians? No, because they have everything they want. What could I possibly want from your God? Look at the world that I live in. Look at the riches that I have. I'm important and I'm rich and I have servants and slaves. What could you give to me? Does that sound like the world? Yes, yes it does. The vast majority of the Christian church in Paul's day was servants, slaves, soldiers, which in many cases were the same thing. Now, were there the upper class? Yes, but the vast majority of the church was broke. Why do you think every time Paul goes somewhere, he's taking up what? He's taking up money for somebody because you got some of it, and you know what they need? They need it because you got some and they got... None. So if you don't mind, you know, sending a little bit that way, we'd appreciate it. That was the whole point of what Paul was doing with those offerings, is most of it was for Jerusalem, where the vast majority of that church was dirt poor. Dirt poor. And that was true for the better part of two, three hundred years in the church. <laughs> yes, that is where we are. We are in chapter 37. <laughs> no, you're fine. <laughs> Hey, somebody's following along. Somebody's paying attention. Go team. <laughs> Everybody's checking their phones real quick to make sure I'm not next. This has been one of the things. Again, how many times have you seen that testimony in church history? I mean, how many, how many rocket scientists are Christians? Like, are there a bunch of them? No, I, I actually can name off a few, but... Um, if you want to have some fun reading, though, there's actually an astrophysicist who is a Christian. His name's Jason Lyle. He actually does um, astronomical work and all that. I, stuff that I don't even understand, but go read his books. You'll feel real dumb for about five minutes. <laughs> and then you'll feel real encouraged that, hey, God can even save smart people. Because believe it or not, it's harder. Yeah. It's harder for a camel. It's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Why? Because what's the temptation? Look at all my stuff. Look at the silos that I've built. Look at all the provisions that I have. I am now at rest. Where's my provision? God. Where's my peace? God. Where's my rest? God. The temptation constantly is to always look for it here. The more you have here, the easier it is to look here. This has been true from the very beginning. This is why Paul, and look, Paul's fun because Paul's brilliant. 
I mean, Paul was a student of the law and was one of the top students of the law. And he's even recognizing, when you compare my wisdom to God's wisdom, (laughs) I'm a moron. And that's why Paul doesn't have to worry about his pride. It's already been crushed. Isn't that what sin is supposed to do? I mean, let's just be honest. Why of any people should Christians ever have pride? We are standing here saying, I am a wretched sinner deserving of judgment, but for the work of God. That's a really nice way of saying, I am terrible at life and have gotten everything wrong. And yet God has redeemed me. And yet God has saved me. This is what is supposed to be communicated to Israel. This is what they're supposed to understand. The breakdown is when you are so plugged into the world around you, what do you see? All of that. The the difficult thing that we're supposed to do is to reprogram ourselves. You grow up in a world. I mean, think about this. We stick you in school from the time you're five, unless your parents hate you like they did me, and they stick you in a school when you're three. True story. (laughs) Two years of preschool because they put me in when I was three. (laughs) Like an idiot, I just kept staying there. Finished high school, went to college, got a master's degree. Yeah, I just have a glutton for punishment. But we stick you in school where your entire world is now built around what? how you fit into a society, how you fit into an authority structure. It is meant to get you to function in a Christian world or a secular world. A secular world. I mean, it's by by its design. I'm not saying don't educate your kids, but I'm saying is recognize that the public systems are set up to serve the public. That's not good or bad. It just is. Which means in Christ you have to be constantly asking questions, reorienting your thinking because you are consistently trying to pull your vision away from the world and to God. Go to work. Work in any field. Work in a medical field. Work in a computer field. Work in customer service like I did for years. And your entire life is centered around what? People. People. I mean, I had a... um, a, a, restaurant I was working in when I was in college, I had a, a manager looked at me, he goes, I got to get out of restaurants. He had a hospitality, a bachelor's degree in hospitality management. I'm like, what are, what are you going to do? Because I don't know. I'm like, have you tried hotels? He's like, I'm trying to get out of the butt kissing business. Because <laughs> that's what, work in a restaurant for any length of time, what do, you, what do you do for a living? Because the world is now about who? Yes. The world is designed Almost like sin has corrupted and infested everything to make us think that this world is really about us. Let's be honest. Why are you aggravated there's container ships off the coast of California? Because I can't get stuff. (laughs) Why are we aggravated gas prices go up? Because it costs me more money. I mean, we are all walking Toby Keith songs. I want to talk about me. You want to talk about I. (laughs) Yeah, I can drop a little country for you, Danny. Are you happy now? There you go. I dropped one country song. I'll never hear the end. Well, I got a Garth Brooks in here a few weeks ago. The entirety of the world system is meant to operate around people. And God comes in and says, no, the entirety of existence is supposed to operate around me. I am the center. I am the highest. I am the best. And when you are saved, when you are redeemed, the Holy Spirit indwells and you have to start doing that hard work to actually reprogram everything around you. And it's work. Look, I put on a new pair of glasses and I'm on week two of my brain rewiring how I see so that I don't constantly do this. Imagine a lifetime of patterns and thought processes. 
It's not just a change of where we walk and how we do things. It's a change of who we are at its core. And the blessings are, that is what God actually does for his people. He does that work to change them. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? The answer is no one. Nothing. Because I have peace and security and provision in God. Will I have everything that I want in this life? No. But will I have what is needed for life and godliness? Yes. Will I be happy all the time in this world? No. But if I am walking and understanding correctly, will I be at peace in this world? Yes. Big difference between those two. Christian, the goal is sanctification. The goal is peace with God because redemption has been accomplished. Our biggest problem was us. My sin, bringing about the wrath of God. And in Christ, it's gone. It's taken away. It's removed. What else am I worried about? God has declared me clean and called me his. What else should I worry about in this world? That's what Israel is supposed to be learning. That's the failure that Israel has, is that they never get their eyes off of this place. The difference between the faithful remnant and the faithless nation is, that is what they see and why they see it. Christian, you know the truth. You want to walk in the truth. That starts out with, I'm walking better today. I'm going to do a good job today. You know how long that's going to last? Yeah, about five minutes. No, the change is, I am God's. He provides. He has granted peace. And I walk in service to him. Now my what's are taken care of, aren't they? Now my hows will line themselves up because the why of my existence is in the right place. This is what the tabernacle is teaching in the construction it does, is it shows us not just how bad Israel can be, which is basically how bad we can be, but how amazing and awesome and good that God is because he instructs and he carries and he accomplishes for them and for his people today. Let's pray.